0: If you have your Bibles, this is Acts uh, 16. Uh, Trevor, I don't know, he's, this is like a test for me. He said, I have to read Acts 16. This is almost like reading Leviticus. <laughs> like it's got a bunch of names in it. So, you know, I'm an Old Testament guy, you know. I teach Hebrew, so this is different. So you please forgive me. Uh, be gracious to me today as a visitor. So uh, this is Acts 16. I got the right text, right? Yep. Okay, good. So, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, But the spirit of Jesus would not allow them in. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her house. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates uh, sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Can you stand with me in prayer? All right lord we just thank you and praise you this morning we can lift up your name and worship i pray father that this house would be a house of prayer in this moment your holy spirit is here may your holy spirit fill us may your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven and pray lord that just like this church in the book of acts people were being added to it daily i pray father for that for mission hill church i pray for that for all the churches in calgary I pray, Father, that your name would be lifted up in this place, that each of us would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, bless our neighborhood in your name for your glory. So I pray this morning, Father, for Trevor, pray a blessing over him, pray for guide his words as he speaks to us, and may we remember nothing except what comes from you. And we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and be seated. You are welcome back any time, Ken, if not just to read scripture. As all those names went through, I could almost audibly hear Aaron gasp and go, I'm so glad I don't have to read those names. (laughs) Um, I felt like I was uh, listening to the Bible on audio when I closed my eyes, so thank you for that, Ken, appreciate it. Uh, It's important to hear that whole story, even though we're not going to get specifically into every part of this story, and uh, it doesn't bother me that we read the whole story anyways because I think uh, having gone through this book of Acts, I don't think we can read it enough, but we're going to embark on a new series. We're going to pick up, it's been so long that I was not here the last time we preached through the book of Acts. That's how long it has been. Uh, and we're picking up the last third of the book of Acts, and it's, we're, we're calling it the Church on Fire. Now, this may feel like a little bit too soon for some of you. Uh, who have maybe experienced some of this forest fire business, but what I want to say is it's perfect for how the Holy Spirit works in proclaiming the gospel. When we say the church is on fire, I think sometimes we say that that there's some metaphor there that's helpful, but if, if you know anything about fires, and I don't know a ton, but I do know three things, and I fact-checked this morning to make sure, but a fire needs three basic elements. It needs fuel, it needs oxygen, and it needs heat, right? Everyone who knows fires knows this, right? There are elements that you have to have all those three together in order to have a fire. Now, you can have them all together and not have a fire, but you cannot have a fire and not have all these elements, Now, here's what's interesting about the way the gospel works, is that there are certain elements that are always there as the gospel goes out. First of all, there are speakers of the gospel. Whether that's people reading scripture, which is still technically speaking, there are always hearers present. And there is always the Holy Spirit at work in both the speaker and the hearer. Does that make sense? So hopefully when you hear this, the church on fire, it's actually pretty good. Because you know that a fire out of control is actually that. It's out of control. The best sometimes you can do is manage it. And even then you're at the mercy of what? The elements, things like the wind, things like the heat, the time of year, things like the fuel that's around. And this is what I love about describing this as the church on fire is that this is exactly how God loves to work. You can't control him. This is perfect for our understanding of how we want to talk about the gospel starting to move its way out. And if you don't think Christianity is a miracle, think about this. Twelve men who did not know what they were doing turns into about two billion today. If you don't think that's a miracle, then you're not listening carefully enough. I don't know what group you can start with 12 and end with billions. It doesn't happen very often. It's never happened in any other way other than Christianity. So this is why. Because once the Spirit starts working through the gospel, it's uncontrollable. It will burn and burn and burn until it's it's accomplished what he wants to accomplish. That's how it works. So what you see in chapter 16 is kind of four stories. Now, some of you are like, these are really disconnected stories. I'm hopefully going to connect them for us. And I want to talk about it this way, how the gospel spread, and then maybe in brackets spreads um, in some ways, because first of all, this is kind of a prescriptive text. Now, that's a technical theological word, we're saying, this is what happens, not necessarily what should happen. This is what has happened. This is how God used it, and I'll, I'll explain that, but how the gospel spreads. Secondly, how, what challenges they faced, or those who did the spreading, what challenges they faced along the way, and then how that affects us. And so the end, hopefully, will, will land on some serious application. But first of all, how the gospel spreads. Now, here's why I say it was prescriptive and not descriptive. Prescriptive essentially means it's describing what happens. Descriptive means what you should model what happens. Other way around, Paul says. Prescriptive, descriptive. Okay, right. Yes. exact. what he said. Paul, when, I, my notes are right here. You should come up. Um, The reason why that's important is I'm starting off with the gospel spread through conflict. Now, Jesus is never happy about conflict within the church, but actually, if you look in chapter 15, especially the last part, you actually see, if you maybe have your Bibles, here's the title above the paragraph, Paul and Barnabas Separate. Now, this is not something I think the Spirit of God was necessarily pleased about at all. I don't think he promotes it. I don't think he he says, go out and and, and split apart so that there's more of you. But that's what happened. That's what actually happened. Uh, We're not totally sure what the disagreement exactly was about. We're given some generalities. But essentially, what had happened is... It, it, it was over traveling companions, and, and Paul did not want to take a man named John Mark with him because he felt like he's a little, he's a little skittish, uh, he's perhaps disloyal, and when the going gets tough, this guy is going to run. And if you know anything about Paul, you know that he's not afraid of a fight. So on the scale of one to, I like conflict, Paul's high, okay, okay? And, and he's I can't have John Mark with me because I'm probably going to get in a conflict. And if we do, then he's going to abandon us. And so I don't want to take him with. Barnabas is the, he deserves the second chance guy. Right? Any of those of us here? Like, some of us actually split into camps as we hear this story. We're like, oh, I, I'm with Paul. Like, I wouldn't want a guy like that with me. And then there's others of us who go, oh, you know what? Everyone deserves a second chance. You know, he probably didn't mean it that much you can laugh at that but you put yourself in these categories and this debate between these two turns so sharp that they go why don't you go that way and i'll go this way now i don't think jesus was pleased about the way they did that conflict but we don't have any of the details and we do know what resulted that the Spirit of God, despite the fact that sinful people are at the heart of this and they couldn't get along, and we're not even sure who is right about this. The text does not say. I think the reason why it does not say is because it doesn't really matter. Here's how powerful and uncontrollable the Spirit of God is, that even a conflict between two gospel preachers, the first ones around, does not prevent the wildfire spread of the gospel. In fact, it becomes the very reason why it spreads so amazingly. This is why, by the way, when you hear of things like church splits, it's not good. This is why you also hear that despite the fact that churches split, two churches spring out of it and they both get blessed. Does that make sense? The blessing is not based upon, oh, we should have conflict. The blessing is... We have such a gracious God that he says, I know that you're like this and despite all of your mistakes and your disagreements, I am going to use this anyways because you can't control the gospel. You can't control the way God blesses his people. Blessing is unearned. You can't earn it. In some ways, it proves how gracious God really is. Secondly, The gospel spreads through the guidance of the Spirit. Now, this is why I separated the two, is is I don't think conflict is is via guidance from the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't, you know, help people get into conflict. But the rest of the the text, the other stories, kind of show this pattern of the guidance of the Spirit, and it really is all over the map, all over the map. Wouldn't it be great if we had a map that would help us? All over the map. So here's what I want to point out. My daughter gave me a pointer. Look at me, hey? Can I get some oohs and ahs? Okay. The first thing I want to say is, it is actually, there is no debate between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. If you look in the text, you actually see that in verse... Seven. Six and seven. Paul, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, you read that right, you heard that right, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when he came up to Mysia, I think that's how you said it, Ken, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. It's like the writer, Paul, or Luke, sorry has said it's no different between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not this different person of God that does his own thing. He works for Jesus. He he is Jesus in, in that sense. But here's what's interesting is we find something strange about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prevents someone from preaching the gospel. Now, does that sound a little odd to you if you know the story of the Bible, right? Here's why we say prevent. So here's where Paul starts off his second journey. And he goes this way, and all these names begin to show up. And he hits about here, Derby, and he feels like he's prevented from going into Asia. In other words, he has to go around. Now, if you look closely, you will see... Ephesus, you will see Thyatira, two churches that end up being very important to Paul, but in this particular time, the Spirit of God says, no, not yet. Now, that should encourage you because some of you perhaps have shared the gospel or you have friends or, or maybe this is your story that you're like, well, well we got, this person's got to hurry up and come to Jesus. And like, why isn't God moving faster? I mean, my question is, what in the world, Holy Spirit, would you be doing preventing Paul from going here when eventually, look at this, he ends up showing up there anyways? Because Paul finds the largest city in the area that he can. He goes to that city. He finds a synagogue. He starts up conversations. That's his technique for spreading the gospel to the Jews. And then eventually, as we see in this text, he begins work to move into the Gentiles. Gentiles don't have a synagogue, although perhaps they had attended a synagogue. So Paul basically is like, I can't do things the normal way I do them. I'm prevented by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not here to tell you exclusively like, listen for what the Holy Spirit prevents you from doing, as much as to say, don't be surprised if at times you are completely mystified by the work of God. As in, I don't know why this person won't believe. I don't know what's holding them back. I don't know why they do believe. I don't know what happened there. I love that we talked about this. Aaron Aaron talked about that. He didn't know I was going to talk about this. But he said the spirit loves to surprise people. I mean, I'm a surprise guy. My wife is not a surprise guy, by the way. Um, I love surprises. She hates them. Literally, does not like them. Birthday parties, do not plan a birthday surprise party I won't enjoy. That's a true story, by the way. (laughs) But God is a surprising God, and that he sometimes, not always, and not in every case, and not in every way, just takes you right off guard and goes, well, I just did not see that coming. We don't know why, uh, necessarily, that the timing was particular, and we don't even know the full range of the how. We know that obviously they were praying, so they were speaking to God, they were asking God, but how, told specifically, we're not sure. And what I would say is that um, when it comes to his dream, he is told about a man in Macedonia who says, come and help us, and someone was like, oh, that means he's going to pray and preach, in Macedonia, but actually the the verse says, and immediately when Paul had seen the vision, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That concluding word literally means essentially they had to put two and two together. Here's the other thing that I would say, there was a bit of a mystery there in how that came, is a man stood there in Macedonia, saying, come over to Macedonia, but what actually ends up happening is a woman gets saved. So they had no clue why they had to go to Macedonia, essentially. It was a combination of when they prayed, Paul, Paul had some inclinations to follow the Spirit. He had a weird dream, and when he explained this dream and they prayed about it, they said, we think it means go, go preach, In Macedonia and bypass what you would normally bypass. I think this is helpful for us as we think through how we are involved with ministries in the city. Some of the stuff really mystifies us. Some of the stuff just shows up unannounced with no real plan and we just kind of jump on it. So if you're like, well where did that ministry come from? Sometimes the actual answer to that is we have no idea. I think that's kind of what happened with our Ukrainian situation. Right? Like we did not predict a war. We did not predict a bunch of Ukrainian refugees, and we did not predict that there was a long-standing connection to an Awana ministry that just happens to be in the middle of our church. And they started collecting together, and we happened to have space. Do you know what that is? That's the uncontrollable fire of the Holy Spirit, and we're saying, can we come along? That's all that is. So this should help encourage us that when we get confused about some of the directions and the turns that our churches take, it just won't necessarily go the way we want it to. And guess what? We're better for it. Because I think if we had actually planned that, probably would have messed it up. Because it's too hard to predict, too hard to plan for. So there's spirit led prevention that doesn't necessarily lead to negative things, but it does lead to how God wants things to go because there were specific appointments. So there were, there were spiritual dreams, as I talked about, spirit-led dreams come over to Macedonia, but it wasn't just a spirit-led dream as if he knew exactly what was going on. He needed some interpretation to it. I mean, it's pretty general. It's like if you had a dream and you said, come to Red Deer and help me, what would you say that meant? Well, that depends. <laughs> Are you an engineer? Are you a school teacher? Are you a single parent? Like It just depends. You need need some help to interpret something like that. God still works that way today. You'd, You'd probably be shocked at the amount of Muslims who come to faith through a dream. And usually, not every time, but usually that dream is Jesus shows up in person in the dream and says, I'm the Messiah, or something along that line. It still happens today. God does actually direct people through dreams, you have a weird dream, and you have a dream where you're like, I think God may be at this, write it down, maybe God is speaking to you, it won't be the last time he did it, and it won't be the first time he did it either, I'm not saying that your crazy dreams are all spirit-led dreams, that's not what I'm saying at all, I'm saying, this is out of my control, friends, but be aware, God is not afraid to use them, he made them. But they lead to third, spirit-led appointments. Here's one of the reasons why I think God prevented is there was particular people that, that Paul had to meet at a particular time because he, the Spirit of God has been working way ahead of time in their lives. He had a spiritual appointment, first of all, with Timothy. So here's the thing. Paul says you know what, we've got some very important information that was decided at the Council of Jerusalem by the apostles, and that is Jews uh, do not need to impose their way of life upon the Gentiles in order for people to be legitimate Christians. We should go tell the other churches. That's why he set out. Guess what? He shows up, nothing happens. But he does meet Timothy. And if you know anything about the story, you will know that Timothy becomes a major player. In Paul's ministry. The books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are written to this young man who was handed a church in, if we have the map, don't go back there, Jenna, in Ephesus, which was a church that was both on the heart of Paul and, and they love Paul. If, if you want proof, read Acts chapter 20, where they basically say goodbye, thinking it's probably for the last time, and they both weep. I mean, this church means something. Paul ends up handing the Ephesian church to Timothy, who's a timid young guy that he really believes in. So you don't think there was a divine appointment there. You're missing what's really going on. And there's some weird stuff in there. I'll I'll admit it. Um, That whole business of Timothy being the son of a Jewish woman, his father was a Greek. Essentially, it means um, he was truly Jewish, but he wasn't circumcised, so therefore he wasn't seen as a Jew, and if you don't know what circumcision is, I believe Aaron's taking a whole morning to study this in academy, so make sure you attend that, right? He would love to tell you what this is after the service. You're welcome. But it seems like a weird thing to say, circumcision doesn't really matter anymore, and then, hey, Timothy. There's a few medical procedures we have to go through before you can be a companion. What that means is Paul was the kind of person who would do anything to see the gospel spread. He, He apparently being uncircumcised would prevent many Jews from taking Timothy very seriously at all because they knew that his mother was Jewish and that his father was not saved. And so he was like, I don't want this to prevent your gospel opportunities in the future, Timothy. You need to do this because the gospel needs to spread. These people need to know about this. And it's, it's, that, that is helpful for us, that we as a church, as we make decisions, there are things that we should be able to get rid of so that we can see the gospel move forward some of us are like i loved that program i loved it and 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 we're not doing it anymore and sometimes that's just simply because we don't have the the people power to to push it forward and sometimes it's like the spirit's just leading this way but it 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 doesn't it, it doesn't mean that we don't care anymore Secondly, there's an appointment that Paul has with Lydia. He goes to preach the gospel. His normal course of action is actually to head to the synagogue. So the synagogue is a place where both Jews and Gentiles outside of the temple in Jerusalem of the time, they could discuss spiritual matters. And so the synagogue is a great place for this. People that show up are already prepped to talk about these particular things, right? Like, if you go to a chat room, you can expect that the people that show up in the chat room want to generally talk about the subject, right? That's why you can break right into spontaneous conversation, right? They're there to talk. That's what the synagogue was for Paul. People were prepped for this. Jews, Gentiles, they can intermix and not have any arguments. They can discuss scripture. And so Paul goes to Philippi, and he doesn't find a synagogue, But there's a place of prayer that's about a mile outside, or 1.6K for those of us who live in Canada, outside of the city, where they know is a place of prayer. And she's a worshiper of God. Now what that means is, she did not know about Jesus, but she was interested in the Jewish faith. That's essentially what that means. This is why she's a worshiper of God, and yet she still has to get saved. That's that's why that's there. But Paul shows up there and essentially waits for someone to ask him a question. It's a group of ladies. I'm sure at the time he may have stuck out like a serious sore thumb. It's like there's 25 ladies and Paul and his friends sitting there. And eventually he speaks. And God opens her heart and she believes. And her whole household gets saved. Her whole household understands and accepts God's plan for salvation for them. And they are baptized right there. Now, because it says her and her household, some most commentators would say she's likely a widow. Husband has died, but she's very, very wealthy. Uh, Only only wealthy people uh, have the color purple. Which sounds funny to us, but it, it has a very unique dye and is very, at the time, was very expensive and very hard to get. And so basically, purple always symbolized wealth or royalty. And maybe Lydia had both, but that's it. That's the only converts that we know of in that city. There was a group of women, but we only know about Lydia because the Holy Spirit had an appointment with Paul, the preacher, and Lydia, the hearer. Some of you have these divine appointments happen to you, and that's the only description they have. Where you're like, there's no real reason why I talked to that person at this particular time. But something was important about it, and I don't know what. Some of you have people that come to your mind... And then like a day later, you meet them on the street, and you're like, that's so weird. I've begun investigating those as potential divine appointments, particularly if it's someone who hasn't been on my mind and for some reason just randomly shows up in my mind. I'm like, where did that person come from? And you know what I do when that happens now? I just pray for them, and I look for them, And perhaps I reach out to them if I haven't, because I'm not totally sure if the Holy Spirit has a divine appointment in mind. That's what I think this means, to follow the Spirit, to be Spirit-led in this. Somebody comes to mind that you haven't talked to in 10 years and you have no idea why, but you can't forget them for some reason, pay attention. It's likely not Satan talking to you, by the way. And it's likely not random. It's just the kind of thing that the Spirit of God loves to surprise you with. Saying, like, you've been going in this direction for 10 years. You've been going in this direction for 10 years. (laughs) Watch this. Boom. Puts them together. This happened with my friend Corey. I don't know if you guys know, but the board chair, Mission Hill Church, is the second best roommate I've ever had in my life. My wife being the best one. (laughs) I don't know, it, there was so much that happened for the last 20 years between us, but somehow God just, and, and the, like the first day he preached, I was like, man, this is amazing how God just had this divine appointment. I would have never dreamed we would have been in this situation. And I can't imagine a better board chair at this time and this place for this church. And I love being part of this leadership team in large part because of that. It's, it's awesome. That's the spirit of God at work. That is not me, definitely not me. And as good of a planner as he is, it's still, I don't think him, putting this together. There was also an appointment with a Philippian jailer that many of you would have prayed this away halfway through his story. Am I right or am I right? Right? Like a guy... Gets annoyed, Paul, uh, this is a, that's the part that I thought everyone would laugh at. There was, a, there was a girl who is following them around. She's like telling the future and she's like, I know who you are. You're, you're preachers of the most high God. <laughs> They're going to proclaim salvation. I'm like, that theology is really, really good. Why was Paul so annoyed? I don't know. Perhaps he was in the minds of Jesus, like, I don't want this girl who's clearly a slave. You know, she, she's a, a fortune teller for a hire. High- I don't want her to be the one who proclaims the gospel message because that's going to confuse. That's what one commentator thought could be. I'm not sure. But it doesn't say Paul had compassion on her. <laughs> it doesn't say Paul really wanted her. We don't even know if she got saved, friends. We just know... Paul was a little annoyed. He was like, stop following me around. Come out of her. And the spirit comes out of her. The evil spirit comes out of her. Now, this, this was a major problem, caused major uh, backlash. And, and I would argue, not just major backlash, but it caused, it caused some people to lose their economic status. And so it was viewed as very dangerous. And they got thrown in prison. At this point, most of us would have sent out an email and said, pray for Paul and Silas that they can get out of prison. Earthquake happens, doors open, prayer answered? No, they stay in prison. It's hilarious, isn't it? That for some reason, Paul's like, no, 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 we're not going anywhere. <laughs> if I was with Paul's group, I was like, what, what did you just say? Like, did we, get, we had an earthquake. Paul's like, uh-uh. I've got a divine appointment with a jailer. Like, in prison. Like, illegally, wrongly, slanderously, in prison, and Paul says, I'm supposed to be here. If that doesn't boggle your mind, nothing else will. I would have prayed that thing away so fast, it's not even funny. But there was something about that unique divine appointment. This is why I say, if you think you can control how the gospel spreads in our city, you are dead wrong. There ain't nothing you or I can really do about the raw power of God in the proclamation of the gospel. Church, I think, in some ways, churches, planting churches, can be described in this way as only containers that hopefully catch some of the growth. Right? This is why we're interested in other churches. We're just trying to help other churches catch some of the way the gospel's already at work long before we ever get the structure behind it. But I, I spent a lot of time on point one, and I'm going to have to move faster, point two. But the challenges they faced, the challenges they faced were there was very little common ground throughout all of this. Like, no one has, like, a, when we say prison ministry, this is not what we're talking about, right? We're not saying go get into prison and do prison ministry from the inside, And hopefully there's an earthquake, and if the earthquake happens, then stay in prison and preach the gospel until, like, the warden gets saved. That's not prison ministry. This is not reproducible. But we shouldn't be afraid when Christians are threatened, thrown into prison. This is not a problem for the Spirit of God. But it is a challenge that they faced that Paul's normal strategy was Jews gather in synagogues and Gentiles would gather in public squares, the agora, so to speak. And neither of those strategies show up in this text, none of them. There is no strategy here but simply following the Spirit of God. But here's one of the things that I noticed, is that Paul's main strategy was to go to the people and not wait for the people to come to him. So I wouldn't even call that a strategy. I, I'd call it the way of life. That was Paul's way of life. And I think this is a hard lesson that we need to learn as churches, as the evangelical church in this century. Because actually I see a lot of similarities between what these Christians face and what I, I think we're facing right now. We're facing some things that, that, that Christians have not faced in quite some time. But one of the things we need to learn is that we need to go to people and not wait for them to come to us. Tim Keller has written a great little book. He said, For a thousand years, the Western church's basic ministry model was premised on the social reality that people would be coming, prepared, and positive, And we could simply preach our sound biblical sermons to them increasingly, this is not the case. And I would say, friends, I don't want to be the first one to tell you this, but I think those thousand years are over. People aren't really showing up to our church services prepared, excited. So we're going to have to go to them. If we want to see and be part of the gospel growth we have we've got to wrap our heads around the fact that most of the gospel work that goes on will not happen during this service on Sunday mornings that there's a lot of work that's going to happen outside of this service and by outside of the service I also mean outside of the normal the normal things we do as a church family it's going to happen at jobs it's going to happen over fences It's going to happen in workplaces, hobby groups, sports teams. That's where most of the work of evangelizing and gospel proclamation is going to happen. You know what? I'm glad. Because it means we need you. It means this is an all-person effort. It means that whatever connections you have to your work are connections our church has to your work. But we can't come in and proclaim the gospel to them. You have to. And so we have to get better as a church at equipping. And, and I believe we're thinking a lot about that stuff right now. How do we equip you to do that? I heard once that someone said of the 10 steps where someone actually becomes a Christian, eight of them are before a church service. That actually come, inviting someone to a church service might be step nine or 10 of a 10 step process. That's a little daunting for some of us because you're like, I, I thought you were going to do all the work. That's not the way the church spread. The church did not spread when paid professionals did the work of ministry, the church spread like crazy at a time where Christianity was severely persecuted, nobody was paid at least not to the extent that we would say. And so we're just gonna have to prepare ourselves for that and even more is to ask to be prepared for it. Don't be afraid to say, hey, this would equip me to do this in my ministry. I think that's what us as spiritual leaders, as elders, as pastors, as staff, that's what we wanna hear. What equips you best to proclaim and live out the gospel where you are? and where God has placed you. And so these are the things that I think will end up, how this affects us, I think it will affect us like this. That the gospel will spread through every disciple, not just the church body corporately or communally. It will, but not exclusively. I think a good portion of the work will be done outside the service, and I think... We're going to learn that our stories of how God has changed us are way more valuable than the methods that we develop. That the days are going and maybe are gone where we have a set way of doing the proclamation of the gospel and that it will be so different and varied because we are so different and varied. And that as Peter instructed his exiled friends... He said, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. He did not say, be prepared to give a reason that someone else told you that validates what you think. He said, if the gospel has changed your life, tell somebody. And tell them how. If you have doubts, tell them what they are and how you fight through them. Somebody's like, well, I don't know how I fight through the doubt. There you go. I'm helping you. I'm saying that's your story. That's how God's spirit wants to work. He wants to work through you and in you and in us. I think we can expect opposition. And sometimes I think we can ex- expect opposition that we didn't deserve. You know, there is such a thing as, and we've had to work through this in our house. Uh, we, we've somehow believed that accusation means reality but it doesn't some people will accuse you of things that aren't true there are some who just by reading the text out this morning could say accuse us of hate speech but it's not it's not but somebody may accuse us of that me of that Just because you're accused of something does not mean it's true. I mean, even in the text, you actually see uh, what they say about Paul. I mean, he gives freedom to this girl. He frees her from an evil spirit. And what they say is, this guy is telling us to go against the Roman government. No, he's not. He's a Roman citizen, which we find out later. And Paul demands essentially an apology on that basis. You see, our, our, the, one of the reasons why we can expect opposition is that the gospel speaks directly against some of the cultural narratives that are in our culture today. I'll give you two, and then we'll close up. The, the first cultural narrative that, that really comes in is it's an identity narrative. It's a narrative about identities that basically says something along the lines of you're not authentic, you're not a real person, you're not your real self until you dig deep inside yourself and you find out whatever is there and then that self becomes authenticated somehow. That, that's essentially the, the identity narrative. And some of us have actually kind of bought into some of that. And the, and the gospel actually says something very different. The gospel says, what's inside of you isn't good enough. But who can be inside of you is the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus Christ, and he is enough. And so preaching the gospel for people who see that identity narrative as truth will view Christianity as very dangerous because it interferes with Perceived freedom, but I can guarantee you without stepping on anyone's toes, it's perceived freedom, but it's not freedom. And some of you know stories of people who have built their identity on things from looking inside of themselves, and it's not providing the freedom that they say it is. It's not. It's... In many ways, these kinds of narratives are like beautiful shoes that are too small. You ever put on a pair of shoes that's a little too small? No? Am I the only one? (laughs) Right? You put them on, you're like, oh, they're beautiful. I want them. And then you're like, but they're too tight. And then some of you actually think you can get past it. Yeah, and you're like, shake your head. You're like, you can put them on, then you try and walk in them. Yeah, how's that working out for you? It's not. That's what these narratives are like. They're like shoes that are too small that look really nice and we put them on and then we try and walk and we get calluses and blisters and feet that we can't walk on. That's what these narratives are actually like. The other one is the truth narrative, and that is we have no right to tell anyone else what the real truth is. The problem with that narrative is, is that the truth that you can't tell me what the truth is? It's a a hypocritical narrative. It's it's a self-defeating narrative. It's a narrative that doesn't actually work when you try and play it out. You have no right to tell me what truth is, but you just told me what truth I was supposed to believe in by saying that. But, But people are blinded. And they need God's spirit to open their eyes. They need God's spirit, just like Lydia, to... To say, that narrative doesn't work. Those shoes are way too small. And they may look good, but I I know what it's going to cause. We need God's spirit to open people's eyes. It's not going to be our methods, friends. It's not going to be our techniques. It's not going to be our programs. No matter how good they are. And I don't want to stop any of our programs. It's going to be the spirit of God that is opening our mouths and opening their hearts. And friends, what we can finally expect is that the gospel wins. The gospel wins. I don't know if you've ever tried to stand in the face of a forest fire, but I've read about people who have, and you can't. There isn't anything on this earth that can protect someone from a raging forest fire out of control. Nothing. 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 Friends, we're on the side of the God who spreads the fire. When we trust in Jesus, when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to change our hearts, when we give up our own desires to have our own kingdoms and say, I, I, I want you to rule and reign in my life. I want you to be the king of whatever kingdom, then you are on the side of the one who creates the fire. The gospel will win, friends. Let me remind you of some texts as we close and get ready for communion. Jesus was asked, what's the kingdom of God like? And he said, hmm, what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made its nests in the branches. A mustard seed is really, really tiny. And a mustard tree is dominating. Covers the whole garden. Nobody gets in its way. And everything benefits from the large mustard tree. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Friends, if you've ever baked bread, and I have not, but I know this, if you put yeast in, you have no hope of taking that yeast back out, do you? And you have no hope that that yeast will not infect the whole dough. It will. It's inevitable. It's gonna happen. Friends, that's what our king is like. He's given us the kind of news that will win. Not possibly, not potentially will. It will completely obliterate all of the sin at one point in this world. As we sang, I can't wait for that kingdom. I can't wait for that new city. I'm looking forward to that. And my hope is this morning that that you are too. And as we take, here's something I would simply ask you to remember, is when we partake of this, the the elements, the cup and the bread, here's what we're actually saying. I want in. Or I am in. Remind me, Jesus, when I get distracted by everything that pulls me away from your kingdom. That's confession. Confession. Remind me also, Jesus, that I'm on your side. Send your Holy Spirit, not just to convict me, but to comfort me when everything seems like it's against me. And so if that's you this morning, I'll I'll pray and then ask the band to come. And you can actually come forward and take the elements as they sing. So Jesus... We need, we need your spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Warm us, encourage us, convict us, remind us, empower us. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Give us boldness to proclaim. Work on our hearts in all the areas that need it and prepare all those whom we are in contact with as we proclaim this good news and how you have changed our lives. Would you prepare those who hear this, Jesus? It's in your name we pray, amen.